0: Welcome to Just Up The Trail. My name is Rob Jones. Today's guest is pretty special for me. Today my guest is Chris Townsend. Chris is a long-distance backpacker. He's an eight doorsman, and he's a regular contributor, in fact gear editor, for the Great Eight Doors magazine. He's a prolific author and it was Chris Townsend's writing that first inspired me to to go out a bit further and a bit longer with my hiking. Back in 2017, after reading one of his books, I took the big leap and grabbed up the kids and we went and spent 10 days hiking the West Highland Way up in Scotland. The kids were small, the backpacks were large, but as we made our way slowly and steadily across 100 miles of Scotland, we really came together as a team. We really started to embrace trail life. And when we reached Fort William, it really felt that we had achieved something really quite special. Looking back now, I'm sure there was other factors that took us from going up mountains for the day or going off on our local trails to, you know, long-distance backpacking. But Chris Taines's warm descriptions of trail life and the scenery and, and the people that he met, that is what left the lasting impression. Chris has hiked thousands of miles over a lifetime filled with trails and mountains and wild places. He's also written more than 25 books, including Grizzly Bears and Razor Clams, about his journey on the Pacific Northwest Trail. In Along the Divide, he journeys 700-odd miles across the rugged spine of Scotland, following the line of the watershed, and I'll leave links to all of his books in the show notes. Today, Chris joins me to chat about his 1982 hike of the Pacific Crest Trail, stretching from Mexico to Canada, through California, Oregon, and then Washington State and the book, Rattlesnakes and Bald Eagles, that opened my eyes to long-distance hiking. But before we get to all of that, he tells me where it all began.
1: I was brought up in the countryside on the Lancashire coast. So I always loved wandering around the woods and the beach and the fields there you know, from, from an early age. So in that sense, I got into walking as a child. And I don't remember the various things that set me going. I think it was just, it was where I lived and that's where you could go out and play and explore. But then with the secondary school, we went, they took us on hill walking trips. Now, Formby, the highest thing in Formby is a 20 foot high sand dune, you know. Everywhere is completely flat. So I'd never seen real hills before. And because from that area, you know, you can get to Snowdonia, the Lake District, the Peak District, and back in a day. And that's where we did school trips. And I was really taken with the hill walking. This was fantastic. I mean, to me, these were huge mountains. This was exciting. So that's how I got into the hill-walking side of things. The first hill of any sort, any grandeur I went up was Arthur's Seat in Edinburgh because my primary school had a last year, final year trip, and we spent a week in Scotland. So I was 11, and I went up Arthur's Seat. And I remember being amazed that you could have them what seemed like a huge mountain inside a city. But in terms of I went camping, but, you know, you got on a bus, carted your big heavy cotton out, took and took, got off the bus, lugged it to a campsite and stayed there for a couple of nights until the tent leaked or you had to go home. I didn't really know anything about backpacking. And the thing that inspired me with that was there was a a book probably long forgotten now, but by John Hillaby called Journey Through Britain. And in the mid-1960s, I think, he walked from Land's End to John O'Groats and he camped. And I remember reading that and thinking, wow, that sounds amazing. I'd love to do that. So that's what made me think about, you know, about backpacking. And I started looking at gear you could actually carry for more than a few hundred yards from a bus stop. And Started going, you know, weekend backpacking, so that's that's where that began. And then the first really long walk I did was Land's End to John of Groats.
0: So, you didn't build up by doing in you know, like Hadrian's Wall or um the Pennine Way or something like that. You went, I did
1: the Pennine Way, was the first one I did that was longer than the... I did that over when I was at college over one Easter holidays. So, yes, but Pennine Way was the first one I was out for more than a couple of
0: nights. So... How does a lad in Lancashire hear about this ribbon of trail that goes from Mexico to Canada?
1: Well, again, there's a number of bits of luck in there because obviously at that time, without with no internet and so on, and the few outdoor magazines, if they ventured abroad at all, it was the Alps, you know, for, for mountaineering. You didn't read about this anywhere. But after college, I worked for a while for an out, a long-gone outdoor shop in Manchester. And that's when I did Land's End John O'Groats. So it, So people knew I was interested in long-distance walking, because so I'd done this one. And there was a guy there who had spent some time in California. And while he was in California, he bought this book, which is still one of my favorite walking books, called A Thousand Miles Summer by Colin Fletcher. And this is about a walk Fletcher did in the late 1950s, the length of California through deserts and the mountains. And I mean, I read that and I was just blown away. I read it and thought, wow, this is amazing. You know, this is a big step up from Lambs End to John and Groats. These places sound amazing. How do I find out anything about them? Because again, you know, without the internet and everything else, California was, you know, sounded like a mythical almost place so far away. I had no
0: idea. Yeah, it's such a bigger world, isn't it?
1: Yes. Oh, yeah. And, but then looking through outdoor books in various, you know, bookshops, I found the Pacific Press Trail, volume one which was the only guidebook at the time. It was a big book, and it was to California. And once I got that, I looked at it, and somehow knowing there was a trail of sorts made a huge difference, you know, because I'd been thinking, how do I even plan something like this? You know, where do I get maps? Where do you even begin? And so discovering there was a trail gave me, if you like, a starting point.
0: And I started realistically thinking, maybe I could actually go and do this. So in terms of organising that, was it just a case of, um, you know, getting as much information as you can, getting as much gear together as you can fit on an aeroplane and turning up? Or were you the with people over in America? Obviously probably by post at that point. It
1: was by post, yes. So you write letters to people and three weeks later you get the reply. So it took a while to plan. But there was then... The precursor of what is now the Pacific Crest Trail Association, you know, which is a very big professional body to look after the trail. Back then, there was a thing called the Pacific Crest Club, which was by one man, Warren Rogers. Because in the 1930s, when they were talking about a trail, he had led a series of parties on horseback over a series of summers to try and work out a rough line for the trail and he'd been devoted to seeing the trail established ever since so I found out about him and got in touch so he was the person who gave me the most information and one of the things which was critical that he arranged for me was the question of food but he put me in touch with a company who would drop ship so it's called Food to Various Place is a Long Way. So I flew to Los Angeles. I'd never been on a plane before. So it was the first part. This was, you know, so in itself, this was a big adventure going to Los Angeles. But I was met by Warren. I stayed with him the first few nights. And he took me out to this place called Trail Foods, where I had to select all these meals. And they were able. I didn't even I didn't even know what some of the things were, but I thought, well, I'll try that. I'll put that in and see what it's like when it turns up. All this food to go to these places along the route, because again, at the time, you know, the PCT is very well established now because there's so many people who do it every year. You know where you can get supplies. You know what every town along the way offers, and most of them are now geared up. Hikers have become, you know, commercially important when the influx of hikers come through and buy lots of food and spend lots in restaurants for little towns in the middle of nowhere, this is significant. None of this existed in 1982. You know, even Warren had no idea whether these little places I was going through would be able to supply suitable food, stove fuel, anything like that. So being able to send stuff for myself, you know, was, was very important, but that was, about it. I mean, the guidebook gave you the rough description. It didn't give you that much useful information because it said at the beginning that they didn't think it was possible to do it in one go, you know, so they said no, you need to come and do it in a series of of walks and that's how the guidebook was set up. And Warren I think in retrospect assumed I knew more than I did. (laughs) which is how I came, as I did, to set off from the Mexican border in early April in big, heavy boots and with, I think, a pint of water across the desert and with no idea that in early April, deserts are still very hot, waterless, because no one had told me this and there'd been no way of finding out. So, you know, so I had to learn a
0: lot very quickly in the first few days. I imagine the Mexican border looked a little different then as it does now. Oh, very. Yeah. In
1: terms of an international border, I remember it was sort of disappointing. It was a sort of barbed wire fence with a wooden box with a couple of rather bored looking guys there. And it, it, you know, it wasn't at the time that serious a thing. And of course, There was nothing saying the PCT starts here.
0: Just a trail heading off into the desert? Just
1: Yeah, you just went up to this wire fence, turned around started walking. Now I know, I haven't been there, I've seen the pictures, you know, there is a a monument, a start point. This is where the people are photographed next to the start point of the PCT when they set off. But there was was nothing there then at all.
0: Can you remember, um, kind of... um... Can you kind of describe your feelings or maybe your expectations or any concerns you had on setting off? Because for a guy coming across from England, the desert is a very alien place, isn't it? It was very, as I say, I I had a
1: a lot to learn. I learned very quickly that the big boots were a very bad idea. You know, my feet just simply, they swelled up like balloons. balloons. I got appalling blisters. And luckily, I'd taken a pair of light running shoes for camp and town wear. So I wore those and carried the boots and realized that the boots, adding another five pounds to my pack weight, was still much more comfortable than having them my. But yeah, I mean, I I really loved the desert because it was so different, because I'd never been anywhere like this. So I was taking it all in. It was all really new. I mean, when I talked to, american hikers especially ones from the west they they were like oh this is the bit you just want to get over as quickly as possible before the interesting stuff starts and i've learned since of course with having done quite a few other walks that in in deserts that involve deserts that if you're going to see the desert landscape the start of the pct is not you know the best place to go at all but for me, never having seen anything like this, I found it amazing. Um, there was some, some trepidation. I mean, this walk was over twice as long as the one, anyone I'd done before. And that had been at home, which was very different. I had friends come out and walk with me. You know, I was phoning home, phoning friends and so on. I wasn't going to do any of that from California. Um, I had no idea whether I could finish it or not. My aim was, well, I'll see how far I get and and what happens. I had, which is what you could get in those days, a six-month visa. So it's like, well, I've got six months. You know, if I haven't got to Canada after six months, then that's it. Because I also knew that by then, the next winter would be starting. So I probably wasn't going to get much further
0: anyway. But no, it was... You know, it was very much going in, going into the unknown. Um, you uh, mentioned about a lack of water going into the desert. Did you very quickly rectify that mistake, shall we say? Did you, you very quickly realise how important it was going to be? Oh, very quickly. I learnt early on, I remember there was a
1: campground. And I thought, well, campgrounds always had water. So I headed for the campground. Didn't have any water. But it did have, water in the USA, camp. Campgrounds in remote areas have hosts who live on site during this, the season. And the host, of course, had brought, they were living in a you know a caravan and a masses of water with them so they didn't have to keep going back to town. So they were able to give me some water and some spare, you know, um drinks, plastic drinks bottles to carry water in. But after that, I started looking at the maps and the guidebook and realizing that I needed to know where there was water and that I needed to carry a lot. I mean, I have to say, that's one of the early lessons that I learned. Once I got into the first hills, the Laguna Mountains, there was still a bit of snow. And in the PCT in Southern California, before you reach the Sierra Nevada, there's a series of east-west running mountain ranges. So the PCT has to climb up to each one, and then go down the other side. All the mountain ranges had snow. So once I was high up, some of the time there was snow, so there wasn't a problem then with water. It was in the lower desert areas, you know, where there was a real problem. And again, it's different now because the PCT has all these local people who help out, known as trail agents, angels. You go through Southern California, they put out a series of water caches so
0: hikers know where they are. So there's more water, and you don't need to carry as much. So um, through that section, af- after you got these bottles, how, man- how many liters of water do you think you were carrying for these? You know, and how long would it have to last you? Oh, I, I, I never carried anything like the amount I've carried on
1: desert hawks since. I, I was, I was carrying maybe sometimes three liters, because again. You don't actually have huge waterless sections. Um, you're talking about, back then, maybe 25, 30 miles, which at the pace I was going was day and a half's walking.
0: Were Were you filtering water in uh, 1982 or was it just a case of boiling it? Did you have a filtration system in that? Or?
1: I was just drinking it. Dip and sip. I wasn't filtering it. wasn't I mean, I was boiling it when I was cooking. But During the day, I was, I was,
0: I was, just drinking, and and you didn't get any bother. No,
1: and that was at the time when you know filters didn't exist, and there was no advice that you needed to treat water at all. And I'd never treated it
0: here; it it, it never occurred to me. Would the San Bernardinos did they feel like a bit of a almost like a practice run before you get into the Sierra Nevada?
1: Well, that was where i learned, yes, yeah, something else, which was that as you know, the reports were coming through that there'd been late snow in the Sierra Nevada, so the snow there was going to be really deep. Um, and I'd met up with these Americans doing the trail. There was, a, there was a guy doing it on his own called Larry and two guys doing it together, Scott and Dave, who were all from the eastern USA. So to some extent, this was a, as unfamiliar to them as it was to me. But a difference was they, they had cached skis Scotland, to go through the Sierra and Larry was carrying snowshoes. In the San Bernardinos, we were, as it's called, post-holing through knee-deep snow. And what I realised was there was no way I was going to get through the high Sierra. Walking through snow like that, and I would have to get snowshoes. At the time, I'd never done any skiing, and probably sensibly, it didn't seem the place to learn. (laughs) So, but I thought, so I, you know, so I managed to find at one place we found somebody who would take us out to an outdoor store in a town where we could buy the extra outdoor gear needed for the high sierra and i i'd got an ice axe i'd carried an ice axe from the mexican border so i carried the ice axe through
0: the desert you know but i didn't have snowshoes so i think nowadays when they do it they have you know the hikers have their boxes and they can leave their desert gear behind and pick up their their mountain gear and go on but
1: oh yeah yes i've done that on walks since but again at, at the time no one has you know, people sent supply boxes, but but they were all packed before the walk. But what we didn't have, which we've done since, was a box that you send on to the next post office, collect it when you're there, and in it you can have any spare items you haven't needed, and also clothes for town that you only ever wear in town, so you can wash all the clothes and so on. But no one had thought of that idea then. Mind you, because, they save crossing all these transverse ranges in Southern California, I ne- I would have needed the ice axe probably every four or five days, a couple of days, then I'd need it again. So it would have been difficult, you
0: know, to send it on and then pack it up. Yeah, I don't think you want to be sending on a piece of safety gear like that in those conditions, Richie. So as you get into the Sierra, clearly that's the biggest mountain range that you would have experienced up to that point. Can you uh, just speak to some of the highlights through the Sierra? Well... The whole of the Sierra was a highlight, in a sense, in that every single day
1: was amazing. And through the Sierra, with these three Americans, we roughly followed the line of the PCT. But because it was snowbound, Berkeley the whole way, and the snow was quite deep, we obviously took a line that was suitable for snow travel, which is not necessarily the same as a trail. You know, trails often run, traverse along at or above timberline on the side of a steep slope, which is not ideal or safe terrain when it's covered in deep snow. So often we were either lower down or higher up than the trail, but roughly we followed the line of the trail. But we decided, I mean, Whitney is not on the Pacific Crest Trail, but you pass by it. I I didn't know anything about it, but the three Americans knew, the, you know, it was the highest peak in the forty-eight state contiguous states, and they really wanted to climb it. So I said, yeah, yeah, I'll you know, I'm happy to to climb it as well. We'll take a day off to do that from a from a camp. Yeah. And that, that was a fantastic, exciting and in retrospect completely reckless day. You know, I mean, it's a a big mountain. It's 14,495 feet and it's a steep rocky mountain. To get up to the ridge leading to the mountain, you know, that was crampons and ice axe. The snow was bullet hard because we were there early in the morning. And then you've got a long traverse on a narrow trail with some huge drops either side, which is, you know, a bit unnerving, shall we say. And then up the final dome to the summit with fantastic views and, and a feeling of triumph because we got there. None of us wanted to go back along that traverse. But we'd seen from below all these gullies running a long way down. So we thought, well, we reckon we can descend down those gullies. Now, Larry, the guy who set out on his own, he had never used an ice axe before. I mean, he he bought one the same time as I got my snowshoes. The day before we did Whitney, I had given him some very basic ISACs instruction, you know, in the evening after our day's walk. That was it. So he really, you know, was not experienced, should not have been there. But then again, you know, we were independent people. We weren't in a group with the leaders. So we couldn't say, no, you can't come. It was up to him. But with the glissading, Scott, who I think was the most experienced in winter conditions, he went first, disappeared down this gully, which had a slight kink in it, reappeared far below at the bottom and waved his ice axe to say, yeah, it's okay. Dave went next. I'd agreed to go last because we didn't want Larry to go last. So Larry, who is really nervous on these ice axe, We'd taken one rucksack between two, because we'd all got huge rucksacks. So for a day trip, we didn't need four you know massive rucksacks to go. Larry, which turned out to be lucky, I carried the rucksack up. He was taking it down, so he got the rucksack on. So Larry, he sets off down, going too fast immediately, and I'm thinking, Larry, use your ice axe, slow down. And then he reaches this kink, as I say, disappeared from view and then I heard this loud yell of I've lost my ice axe and I couldn't see him I could see Scott and Dave far below and they were waving but of course I couldn't hear anything if they were shouting so I thought what do I do and I thought well if I slide down I don't know where Larry is I might you know I might crash into him and then we both go tumbling down so I managed to scramble down the rocks beside the gully very cautiously and found i found larry's ice axe luckily so i'd now got two ice axes and he was i mean larry was a big lad anyway i mean he was well over six foot his ice axe was about 90 centimeters it was this huge and wieldy thing you know more like an alpenstock than a modern ice axe and i could see because scott and dave had already been down they'd taken most of the snow off it so i think larry had, you know, collided with the rocks, which is when he'd lost his ice axe. I could see Larry below me, spread-eagled on the slope, flatten his back. And he said, I can't move. So I basically kicked steps down to him because, again, I thought, if I start glistading, I might crash into him or I might chew past him, and you know. And when I got to him, I said, look, we've got a clear run out now. You can, you know, here's your ice axe. And he said, "No." Nope. No, nope, I'm not doing it. I'm not sliding. And the only reason he was stuck there was because of the crampons on the back of the pack, you know, which is stuck in the snow. So he couldn't move because he felt if he moved, he would slip. So initially, you know, I had to sort of go below him and, and cut, cut steps and sort of tell him so that he, until he got his confidence back and felt he could glissade the rest of the way. But um, so it was a somewhat exciting day.
0: In terms of the, the snow levels, how did, obviously that would have reduced, you know, you spoke about post-holing, but then you, you're saying you got your snowshoes and that. How much did that reduce, like, your daily mileage and what was the knock-on effect on that in terms of your provisions and the time between provision stops, if you like, resupplies?
1: We averaged through the Sierra 12 miles a day, you know, which, which if we hadn't already walked 500 miles when we got there, we'd never have done that. But obviously we were very fit when we set set off with huge packs and that's roughly what we estimated now again we reckoned it would take three weeks to reach mammoth lakes which is the next supply point scott and dave who had planned better than me they had cached food at a place called onion valley which is roughly halfway and they'd reckoned they were going to take a day off, go down to Onion Valley, collect their food, and come back up. So they didn't need to carry the whole food. I carried all the food for three weeks, which was ridiculous. But I had this purest idea, and I'm glad I did it in retrospect. I didn't want to leave the mountains. I wanted to do that section, you know, unbroken, and stay up in the mountains the whole time. Larry was a bit pulled in the half because what he said was, well, He'd carry more food than Scott and Dave. He hadn't got a food cache in Onion Valley, but he reckoned, well, I'll go down to Onion Valley and then I can hitch a ride to Independence and buy some food, food there. So the three of them were intended to go down. I didn't, I could have gone down and thought, yeah, I can go to Independence, but I didn't, really didn't want to break it. And I carried all this food, so I had no need to. So I actually sat out. I stayed at a place called Bullfrog Lake and said to them, well, you you can leave your tents and stuff here. Because I'll I'll look after them. And I was quite happy. And it was really nice, actually, you know, having a day.
0: There's a small passage in your book where you write about being at Bullfrog Lake while your companions go off for the resupply. And uh, how important to you are those moments of solitude out on the trail not so much when you're hiking on your own because that's still got that sort of sense of purpose about it isn't it you're still thinking about where am I going next you're still navigating but just that that little spell of time to just sit and be you know how important is that to you on your journeys? oh
1: it's very important and it's one reason why I've never tried to do high daily mile my- mileages i've never done a long walk where I planned it to do twenty five miles a day or thirty miles a day because i've always felt even if I could do that, there'd be no free time you know I'd have to be walking all the time every day to achieve that, and then I wouldn't have the time i wouldn't find somewhere and think I just want to sit here for an hour and you know contemplate my surroundings a lot of the time. I do that in camp because another thing with, you know, averaging, which I think I have done on all the long walks around 15 miles a day, means I'm not under pressure to set off like a rocket in the morning. You know, if it's a nice campsite and I like it, I can linger there for a bit before I set off. And similarly, I don't feel I've always got to walk until it's dark. So if I find a nice campsite in the middle of the afternoon, I can stop. And just be at the campsite for a few hours. And I think one of the things with that Bullfrog Lake camp was because I was traveling with three others, and because of the snow, there was more pressure on us to spend longer on the trail. I was missing those times in the way. I mean, I was really enjoying it. And I was glad to be w- with others. We all got on well. And also, we were all aware it was safer to be in a group with conditions. As they were. But I think, you know, that gave me an opportunity, if you like, to indulge myself in something that I wasn't going to do in a group of four.
0: We're just going to take a little break here for a moment, just so I can tell you how you can support the show moving forward. So if you head over to www.justupthetrail.com. That is the hub for the show. You'll find everything you need there. We are running a Patreon. Those of you that can support us building this library of stories and adventures and know-how, please head over. It's only a fiver. If if you can find us a fiver a month, we'll be ever so grateful. If you can support us on Patreon, that'd be amazing. I really appreciate that. It will certainly help keep things going here. www.patreon.com forward slash just up the trail. And of course, you can always follow us on social media. So, at Just Up the Trail on Instagram and Facebook. Now, back to Chris Townsend. As you pushed on through the Sierra, did the snow? This obviously, the snow then begins to have a bit more of an effect in terms of as it melts, it's got to go somewhere, and then you start getting into swollen rivers and river river crossings. Oh, yeah. That that was actually,
1: I think, by far the most dangerous bit of the trip. The trail through, once you get from Mammoth Lakes, we went to a place called Tuolumne Meadows, which is on the first road that crosses the Sierra from east to west. North of there, it's mostly Yosemite National Park, but the trail is lower than further south. So the combination of a lower trail and later in the year, yeah, the snowmelt had started. There was still quite a lot of deep snow, but there were all these raging torrents. And we had so many, you know, river fords, either roped fords or crawling across fallen logs, you know, above, above this seething white water with the noise definite. I mean... Again, in retrospect, we should have sat in Tawallery Meadows for a week, waited
0: for it to go down a bit, but but we didn't, and we made it. Would some of that been because you've, maybe you felt you lost time coming through the snow higher up, you felt a need to press on rather than sit?
1: Um, partly, I think it was also we'd had two days off in Mammoth Lakes and we were, you know, it was like, we're really keen to get going. We don't want to spend any longer in town. I don't think we seriously thought we should wait. I certainly don't remember us ever discussing it.
0: Was was there a point with these river crossings that you thought someone's going to get hurt here?
1: We were very careful. I suspect there were moments that were more dangerous than we actually realised. And this was, again, this was at the time, I mean, I know now, you know, roped river crossings are not recommended. I mean, I, I'd done courses, I'd led courses for Outward Bound Loch Hill going through Noidart and Across Sky backpacking trips in previous years. We'd done roped river crossings on those. So I was familiar with roped river crossings in torrents that were not that dissimilar to the ones in Yos- Yosemite. The Yosemite rivers were wider, but the force of them was much the same. There wasn't the awareness then
0: of how dangerous roped crossings could be. Um, Once you're through the High Sierra and it's kind of, you know, it's it's challenging, it's adventurous, um, you write in the book about how the challenge became just to keep going, whether there was like a change in the weather and a change in the scenery and the trail conditions. Not every day on the trail is going to be better than the previous one. So I was just wondering how you kind of deal with that in terms of mindset.
1: I think I'd already learned to do that before the PCT, luckily. Because obviously, you know, I'd done Land's End on the Groats. I'd done two 500-mile walks over Scottish Monroe's. Now, on all three of those walks, I'd had long periods of wet stormy weather unsurprisingly given where they were and what i'd learned was a sort of stoical approach that as long as you keep going you'll get through this so don't let it get you down too much and really there wasn't anything that's like that on the pct you know weather was never that bad and it and the bad weather
0: never lasted as you came out of that northern section then and like you say the the change in the style of hiking i suppose how much does like mount shasta away in the distance how how does that does that feel kind of like a a beacon that's drawing you into the Cascades Did
1: yes because it was the it was the only isolated mountain on the trip that you see from a long way away and you see it day after day after day and it's slowly, you know, it's ahead of you, then it's to the side of you, then it's behind you. So, yes, that did. But the other thing which Shasta typified that was different, let's say, the whole of the High Sierra, including the section through um, Yosemite, was a, a highlight in itself, the whole lot, every single day, was wonderful. Once you get out of the Sierra... I then tend to see you go from place to place, which are, which are interesting. So there's a series of highlights, and in between there is a lot of forest walking, which is pleasant, but you know you're in woods that don't change much. You're in rolling hills, so so there is a change, and that lasts until you get to the North Cascades, North California, Oregon. You know you've 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 got shasta when it appears um you've got crater lake you've got the three sisters but it's like yep yeah, the next and there's always one coming up so you're always thinking well in a couple of days you know the landscape will get more interesting and exciting again and then a couple of days after that it'll happen again but it wasn't like continuous as it had been in the
0: high. School. Um, as you left california then did do you feel you already had some idea of the impact that the pct was having on you as a person like your outlook on the world maybe
1: in one sense yes i mean the the big change i think was by the time i had finished california hiking the trail was what i did you know it wasn't like i've got a holiday in the lake district for a fortnight and then i go back to everyday life it was everyday life I I've been doing I've been doing this now for 3 months. So I didn't think outside of the trail. The trail, you know, hiking the trail was what I did, being a trail hiker was who I was. You know, there wasn't a life outside. So in that sense, yeah, I changed greatly. I mean that hadn't happened on earlier walks. I think on, the thing with Lands End and John Groats, well it was it was 10 weeks. But also, because it was at home and friends were joining me and I was ringing them up, I didn't feel, you know, detached and in a completely different reality, which I did on the
0: PCT. Um, So as you're going through Oregon, you must be at this point feeling as strong as you ever have done, as fit as you ever have done. And really in, like a rhythm and eating up the miles and you've already spoken about um like the cascades in the Three Peaks Wilderness and and then I suppose going on to mount Hood and Washington, but is there any major highlights from Oregon that you can pick? Crater out?
1: Lake is a fantastic place and completely different from anywhere else. Now, obviously you can drive to Crater Lake or get out at the visitor center and just go and look at it and get back in your car. Um so it's not it's not out in the wilderness like mount whitney is or other places but it is you know being this absolutely huge volcanic crater full of water with islands poking out of it it is so unusual so that that stand that stands out as one of the places but then the most of the southern cascades are rolling wooded hills i mean that they're high. You're still talking about nine, ten thousand 10,000 feet high, but the walking is fairly easy. The hills, they're very nice, but they're not very dramatic. But dotted along them are all these volcanoes, which are much higher. So they rise well above timberline and really are, you know, alpine style mountains, which have glaciers and snowfields, cliffs and so on. So the series of these were interesting. I mean, that's what, the Three Sisters Wilderness, the Three Sisters are basically three volcanic cones protruding out of the forest. And then you've got Mount Jefferson, which is a really beautiful volcanic cone. And then Mount Hood, which is right on the border with Washington. Um, and your companions are still no. with you at this point? Um Larry was some of the time. Um, Scotland, we we actually split up before going to through the Yosemite, which was a bad idea because four of us would have been safer for those river crossings because um, we wanted to go at different speeds. You know, we'd all accommodated to each other in the Sierra because we felt, well, we have to. We'd agreed to go through together as a group. Um, La- Larry and I wanted to push on a bit more and a bit quicker, but again, in different ways. I mean, Larry was... Very much the wake up in the morning, have a swig of water and a handful of gawk, pack up, and 10 minutes later, you're on the trail. You know, I was more, wake up in the morning, have a look at the view, and let's make a cup of coffee, drink the coffee. I wonder what I shall have for breakfast this morning. Oh, let's have some food. And two hours later, I'm on the trail. So we'd agreed at one point, you know, we would travel differently because it fitted how we wanted to walk. And also for the reasons I was saying earlier about, you know, the times alone and quiet, I wanted to go back,
0: you know, to being, to being on my own. Um, Going into Washington, then the, the end is in sight, I suppose. Uh, it's, you know, it's a final state. There's still many miles to go. Is this where maybe all those previous miles start to catch up with you a bit and maybe the weather starts to turn against you? And at what point do you start contemplating the finish? The weather turns, in a sense. I mean, I knew that the
1: North Cascades had the wettest weather on the whole of the trail and that it was not going to be like the High Sierra. Deserts are a long way south at this point. So I was expecting the weather would be... What I was hoping was it wouldn't be too wintry, because also we're now in September. You know, we're in the autumn, summer is on. The only way the previous miles caught up with me, though, was in my shitness. Um, I was now doing 25-mile days in the time it had taken me to do 15 mile days and with what felt like the same effort so the miles didn't catch up in terms of me slowing down or anything the weather however you know was another matter the first winter storms came in I certainly lost one day where the weather was so bad I sat it out you know I mean even I I was in a a cabin at one of the mountain passes and the weather was appalling there And people who did set off on day hikes or short came back fairly quickly and said, no, it's it's impossible up there. So I was quite sure that physically I could reach the end. But I was not sure that the weather was going to reach the end. So right until really the last three or four days, I did not know if I was actually going to, to make it. Because I was very aware that if a big storm like that one came in again and lasted, that might be it. That might be the trail closed for the season. And I wasn't, you know, all my snow and ice gear had gone, except the ice axe, had gone home after the Yosemite and the High Sierra. I didn't, you know, so I I didn't have crampons or gaiters and so on. I was, and of course, all my gear by now was pretty worn and not working as well as it had, you know. Five months earlier. So I was certainly not equipped to deal with, you know, wintry weather. But the last few days it rained all the time, but it didn't, know. So, you know, so I finished in weather that was preparing me to come home, you know. I I
0: was going to ask, and like, do you, can you remember like your initial thoughts when you reached the border? And were you already kind of thinking, what's next?
1: Yeah, I was thinking, what's next? I'd heard from others on the trail about this thing called the Continental Divide Trail, so I'd thought, oh, I thought, "Yeah, I must—that's interesting. I must find out more about that." So I got that in my head. I mean, I found, and this is point with other long-distance walks, that depending how long the walk is, but on the really long walks, a week, maybe five days before the end that's when my outlook starts to change and I'm thinking beyond the walk and and it's no longer that being on the trail is what I do. It's like, this is coming to an end. But mostly, I was just overjoyed that I'd finished and also sad that it was over because obviously the, the point of doing it was for the experience the journey it wasn't to get to the end you know the, the ends, like the be- beginning were just well you've got to have a start and a finish and they're they're the convenient ones they're the ones of work but they're not they're not what it's about
0: you have written i can't remember if it's in the book or if it, it probably is in the book or if it's on your blog but you've written that the pct was the defining walk of your hiking career. Um and I think we've probably already covered it, but can you you can place a moment on the trail when you kind of decided that this is what I do and I'm gonna do it forever? I
1: think it was after the high Sierra and Yosemite sections. They were, if you like, the defining part of the PCT. It would have been much easier if there hadn't been that late snow and they'd have been more of a trail walk. But at the same time, it would probably have had less impact on me. I'm glad it was as it was. But overall, the, you know, it came on gradually. But certainly by the end, it was this feeling of, this is what I really enjoy doing. Therefore, I want to do, you know, more of this. Lots more of this. Lanzo and John Groats, and I knew after that I wanted to do more on walks. But it didn't have the same impact, you know, as the PCT did.
0: I think what you've done is what I tell my children to do, in that you've found the thing that you love to do, and then you've worked out how you're going to get paid to do it. Yes,
1: you could say that, yeah.
0: Along those lines, um, what made you revisit all your journals uh, to write Rattlesnakes and Bald Eagles all those years later? Um, Had there been opportunities to do so before? I had
1: written my first book, The Great Backpacking Adventure. There's a chapter on the Pacific Crest Trail in there, but only one chapter. And I thought that, that would be it. That's what I'd written about it. But no, it was in 2010, I did the Pacific Northwest Trail. And I'd written a book about that for Sandstone Press. And I was talking to the publisher about another book, and he said, "Would you like to write one about one of your other long walks?" And I immediately said, "The Pacific Crest Trail." As soon as he said that, I thought, "Yes." So that that's how it you know how it came about.
0: I expect you were glad to have your really detailed, well written journals at that point still.
1: If I hadn't had my journals, I'd done a book. I couldn't, you know, there's no way from over 30 years before I could have remembered in... I mean, I could have done a shorter book, but I couldn't really have done a book in which I could try and express, you know, the day-to-day experience. Because one of the things I found reading my journals was there are incidents in the journals that I don't really remember. And I had to take it on trust. I wrote this down at the time. It happened. It must have done, but I don't actually remember. And at one point, when I was going through the photographs, which are all Kodachrome slides, I mean, there's no digital photography in those days, so it was all slide film. I started cursing myself about why I hadn't photographed this. And, you know, you've... Re- you haven't got a picture of this person. What did they look like? What was this town like? What was this store like? What were your supply boxes like? Why haven't you got photographs or more? And then I realised, and I thought, because I didn't have a digital camera, I had film, which was expensive and heavy. So I was rationing it.
0: I, I mean, there's some, one, there's some truly wonderful photos in the book.
1: I was, yeah, some of them, they've not come out. You know that badly, given that they're scanned from 30, 70 year old old slides, um, and that whilst I was taking photography seriously at the time, I was still a fairly inexperienced photographer. I'd only been taking it seriously for two or three years.
0: I know you've revisited the Sierra and the High Sierra several times over the years, but has there ever been a desire to go back and do the PCT all over again? No,
1: because there are so many other fantastic walks to do. There's always been more walks that I'd like to do than I will ever do. So I've, you know, the only time I've been back to, if you like, redo a bit of a walk was the the last one I did in 2019 when I did the Continental Divide Trail through the Colorado Rockies. But that was because when I did the Continental Divide Trail in 1985, early winter snow really did stop me. And I took a much lower route, mostly in the forest, seeing nothing. And I always felt I'd really really like to go back and see what I missed. I'd like to do something different. I mean, the times I've been back to the Sierra, some of what I've done has incorporated parts of the the PCT, but only because it fitted into a different walk I was doing there.
0: Now the world's opening up again, the. Have you got a big, another big walk in planning at the uh, moment? I haven't got a big walk properly planned
1: because I still I'm still wary about what's going to happen and not wanting to make plans and having to cancel them. I am at the moment working on a book on the Kangorns, where I've lived now for over 30 years. And I am going to, this spring, early summer, do a long-ish two or three weeks walk in the Kangorns. And that, I'm thinking at the moment, that will be a sort of finale to this book because this book is going to be about the Cairngorms, but about all the trips I've done in the Cairngorms, and, the, you know, the winter trips, summer trips, snow holding, ca- camping, the natural history for a whole thing, you know, about... Since I first came to the Cairngorms, it's, well, over 40 years, thirty over 30 I've lived here. So that that's going to be the next, the next book. And I'll say, so this walk is going to be You know, I'm still thinking about it. I haven't planned any details, but my idea is to go back to all the key places from the past and visit them all and have a, you know, an unstructured walk in the Kangolms where the point is to go and see all these places rather than walk from A to B or climb X number of peaks or, you know,
0: whatever. That sounds wonderful. Um, where can people find your books? Which is the best place to send them to to find your well,
1: books? Well, the, the Sandstone Press website has got... I mean, they published my last, I think, five books. So they're all, all on that website. Obviously, any bookshop, you'll be able to get the ones that are in print. Bookshop.org, because that supports local bookshops. And I'm saying, of course, if you're in Granton-on-Spey, Spay, is the wonderful the bookmark run by the wonderful marjorie which i think is the best independent bookshop in the world
0: that's wonderful thank you very much for spending your time with me this afternoon i've really enjoyed that it's they say not to meet your heroes but i have and it's oh, definitely worthwhile thank you well, so much thank for thank you time.
1: i've enjoyed it as well
0: Wow, that was amazing, wasn't it? I I can't believe I just spent an hour or more chatting to my hiking hero. He was ever so gracious. He was ever so generous with his time. But yeah, I think I said in the show that people often say you should never meet your heroes, but I have, and it was amazing. I'm so pleased. Um, I hope you enjoyed the show. I hope you got something out of it. I hope it gives you a idea of what we're trying to do here at Just Up The Trail. I've got loads more really cool guests lined up. Tom's coming on to talk about cooking decent food out on the trail and at camp. Steffi Boone is coming on the show from 10milehike.com. She's going to be talking to us about her journeys on all the national trails and this marvellous thing she's doing, Women Afoot, where she's handed over a section of her blog to help empower other solo female hikers. Also, a friend of mine, Mike, is going to be on to talk about his upcoming Free Peaks Challenge in July, which he's doing to raise awareness for children's mental health. So, we've got a busy few shows ahead. I'm going to be releasing episodes on the 1st and the 15th of each month. And in between those, there's going to be blog posts and stuff on Instagram about our guests and about what we're up to. I'll probably bring, bring you some stuff from the trail while I'm out and about. It's looking... To be really exciting, I'm really looking forward to some of the guests I've got lined up. I'm really looking forward to you hearing some of the guests we got lined up and I know it's early days, but if you can head over to the patreon and support us, that'd be wicked and if not, please just share us with your mates If you know someone who's into hiking and want something to listen to on the trail, then yeah pass us around please that'd be wonderful and I shall speak to you next time, just up the trail.
1: On the the top of the hill. On top of the hill.